Welcome back to Emmaism, a philosophy podcast for students of philosophy, because that really is what we all are, seekers of knowledge. Happy Thursday, guys. It's time to philosophize. I know, up front, I have to acknowledge my two-week hiatus from podcasting. I had to take a little bit of a break in order to study for my midterm. Astronomy man, am I glad to be a philosophy major? (laughs) Astronomy's tough, but I'm happy to report that my break from philosophy had a respectable payback, so it was all in good effort. Alright, so how can I ever make up for my prolonged absence? I can give the masses some philosophical techniques and input for Taylor Swift's new Red album. (laughs) Isn't that incredible? Um, So, as to fulfill that tall order, I'm going to first talk about the philosophical implications of Taylor's re-recording of her albums, and then I'm going to dive into the philosophical meaning of some of her lyrics. And that will be that. So, first off, I want to talk about agency. This is what I understand as Taylor Swift's primary motivation for re-recording her albums. She wants to recover her agency in her own labor. She wants to own her labor, rather, you know? So, but, but we knew this already. It, well, at least if you follow Taylor in some capacity. But let me ask you this. Does Taylor really own her own labor? Does she really own her labor? Let me let you guys think and dwell on that for a second because it's a little bit more complicated than you'd first think i mean you can probably foresee that i would obviously say yeah taylor swift absolutely owns her own labor and she is entitled to the value generated from her labor what do you think is taylor swift actually entitled to the entirety of her labor product i You know, I imagine that this question leaves a bunch of you puzzled and wondering why I'm even asking such a question in the first place. Well, two weeks ago, I think, um, in my social contract class, my professor, Dr. Wodak, um, was talking about how left and right politically leaning individuals think about an agent's entitlement to their object of labor surplus value. You know, I mean, we can reduce it really quickly to houses um you know do you think that if you buy a house completely in cash you know the whole gist of it you own it right um you go five years later you've made some improvements on the house maybe you redid a bathroom maybe you replaced the flooring but the house went up in value just because of the market demands are you entitled to the entire surplus value that the market demands, you know, generated? Or are you only entitled to the initial portion you put toward the house and maybe a fair return on those little investments you made? That's kind of what we're talking about, but we're talking about it with human capital, talking about Taylor's talents. Um, You know, this also ties in way back to something else we learned in the social contract class where we talked about Shauna Schifrin's liberal account of someone's entitlement to the value of their talents. This is what I'm saying, human capital. Can this really be applied to human capital? So to address this question, we must ask more specifically instead of whether Taylor is entitled to the whole fruits of her labor, does she even have a rightful claim to the surplus value of her labor and her talents? Um, I already precursed my answer, but I'll justify it right now. Taylor Swift is a being in time who has agency in certain tendencies and is her own. Um, I see that she herself, her own individual, has full ownership of her talents. 
I also argue that Taylor is further entitled to the benefits from her talents. This is because Taylor, as a being with agency, can decide how to and whether to exercise her talent in certain ways. You know, I might have the talent to be able to argue and, you know, I guess if we're looking at it on a market scale, my talent to argue, or I guess a better way of phrasing it, to make philosophical um, discussion and foster the argument, potentially, um, in a logically coherent way, maybe the market value of that is more, um, I guess, rewarding if I become a lawyer um, rather than someone who would pursue a PhD and become a professor. Um, but it is my choice of how to exercise that talent and which way I want to go. So that is completely within my, the scope of my agency. But without Taylor's initial and continued exercise of agency, she would not have produced the fruits of her labor that, as they are present today. Because the fruits of her labor are born from her initial and continued self-expressed and performed agency, she is indeed entitled to the whole market value of this. But believe it or not, there's people who think that she's not. (laughs) The other view that will seem a little bit less intuitive, but has implications that reside more with what I think the opinions of most of you is, um, is that where Taylor, you know, doesn't have the moral right to the full market value of the fruits of her labor. Philosophers in support of this conviction hold two important premises. One premise that's crucial to their conclusion is that Taylor relies on a community to foster her talents and cultivate them so to be at the position where she is at right now. These philosophers also tend to take the other defense route that Taylor is a monopoly herself because she has talents that are not available elsewhere on the market. So people have to go to her, you know, they have to pay her money. They have to, you know, do that because she's unique. (laughs) No one else has Taylor Swift's voice. No one else has her songwriting abilities. Um, She is one of a kind. She's a monopoly. Therefore, she relies on the public to put a demand on her talents and with that a price which arguably makes her talents valuable. So in this view, the public is responsible for creating some of the surplus value of her, the fruits of her labor. Given that Taylor's primary motivation of re-recording her albums is the fact that she wants full ownership of the rights of her work, it seems like she would disagree with the latter view and would be aligned more with what is a right politically um, leaning for philosophers. Then again... I don't know what she'd actually say when presented with these arguments, so I can only infer based on her actions. But, you know, when you post about your new album finally being, quote-unquote, all yours, kind of sounds like you think you're entitled to the whole market value of your talents and your labor, right? (laughs) Okay, so now that we've established a philosophical background to Taylor's re-recording venture, let's talk about some of the actual lyrics in her song. Taylor Swift is an incredibly poetic songwriter, and with that, I feel like it goes hand in hand. She is very philosophical. Quick side note, when I think about like philosophy and songs and the philosophical analysis behind songs, I always think of Carly Rae Jepsen, because one thing that um, one of my old professors, Dr. Camacho, said during Augusta Antiquity class is that Carly Rae Jepsen says in her Call Me Maybe song that, and I quote, Before you came into my life, I missed you so bad. How can you miss someone you haven't met? Well, 
maybe that's for another podcast, but still, it, it has some quite some philosophical implications. Anyways, back to Taylor. She's the one we're looking at today. Let's first look at the lyrics of The Idol of Red Taylor's version, the 10-minute version of All Too Well. I'm not really sure what Taylor Swift's religious affiliation is, but yeah, I really threw a quarter bell on that one. We're going right to religion. But one of her lyrics hints at a divine creator and some immaterial nature of the material world. She sings, Autumn leaves falling down like pieces into place. <laughs> um, forgive me, I won't sing in the future, but <laughs> Taylor, in mentioning pieces falling into place, offers up a signal that there is indeed a place for each piece of the moment. Autumn is a moment in time and it's temporary. Autumn is fleeting and the stays in the leaves, um, in a state of, I guess, dying, fall and come to a resting place. Time is fleeting and comes to a resting place. Taylor is being a little bit existential here. The philosophical reading of the lyric is that she suggests that fleeting moments in time have a place and a certain place as determined by a divine source. I know it seems like not one of the most obvious lines, like, you know, that I choose, but I do think it holds some significance, at least in hinting about her thoughts of places, of objects in time, and only temporarily in relation to a divine creator. So, let's just continue. One of the pre-chorus lyrics of All Too Well is, I forget about you long enough to forget why you needed to. This is similar to my comment on Carly Rae Jepsen earlier, though it was brief. Um, Memory is one of my favorite philosophical topics. This lyric goes to share Taylor's view on the mind and the role memory plays in healing. Memory, for me, is not simply an act of recall. Rather, it's an entire realm of mind. Our memory is potentially infinite, um, yet contains a number of finite things. Taylor's lyric relates to this implication of, at least what I take to be the definition of memory, um, is that her memory is indeed an infinite thing and she can forget, though, you know? The act of forgetting creates a possibility for that same forgotten memory to resurface at some point, recalled, but not the same. In forgetting him for long enough, Taylor recalls and forgets why she even needed to forget. The recall exists by Taylor by virtue of it coming from the roots of her memory, but it is not encountered by Taylor because it is counterfactual. The recall is not the same as the original memory. The act and implication of forgetting transforms the memory and gives different shape to finite moments within the infinite memory. Say that five times fast. <laughs> okay, to, just to keep going with all too well, she continues with a heartbreaking, heart-wrenching story by singing that He's going to say it's love, but you never called it what it was. I mean, I'm sure the majority of people listening on this podcast have been in a relationship of some sort and and can some can understand the dynamics of what a successful relationship is. When a relationship is successful, it's like two wills are united and in sync. Taylor here is describing a fragmented will. Um, a relationship where there's a loss of coordinating power between individuals because of unreconciled tensions of what they individually think about in the relationship. Philosophy is such a powerful discipline because it provides a way for individuals to analyze themselves, their place in the universe, and their place among others. For further analysis, I'm bringing a final all-too-well quote in. 
when she goes, you kept me like a secret, but I kept you like an oath. That's not the melody, but I just, I had to sing it. Her counterpart, which we all know is Jake Gyllenhaal, ugh, treats their relationship like something he is above. You usually keep things a secret that you're either not proud of or feel uncomfortable sharing. He, in this case, must have a terrible vision of self and his relationship because of his inability to recognize the impact he has on others. Taylor keeps him like an oath. Humans have the capacity to, one, be beloved, and to, two, love. Taylor is doing two but missing one. Jake Gyllenhaal is beloved but fails to love. Perhaps he is too tied down by his carnal habits. He might be drawn back into old habits of youthful, quote-unquote, love. One last thing about this pairing of lyric. Um, it takes a lot for a person to say, I love you. I mean, objectively, it is the most humbling thing you can do. Love another and set aside a portion of self-love. That takes a lot to say it and mean it. I had to amend that. <laughs> People in healthy and successful relationships undergo a serious humility check because loving another creates a completely different outlook on life. And finally, in your temporal capacity, there is a quote-unquote other to attend to. Humility is love. All right, so let's turn to my second favorite song of the album, Red. I mean, how are you going to name an album Red and not have an iconic song called Red? If you've listened to the song, you probably know where I'm going with this. For those who haven't heard the song, Taylor makes a lot of comparisons about loving someone and, and you know, comparing it to something that it's like. I'd like to speak on the philosophical implications of those comparisons. Um, we'll start with one of the last lyrics, actually. It's just like the ones from All Too Well. Taylor sings that forgetting him was like trying to know someone you've never met. How do you know someone you've never met? How does that equate to forgetting? Like I mentioned before in discussing philosophy of mind briefly, the action of forgetting transforms the memory and gives different shape to the finite moments within the infinite memory. When you forget something and it is an intentional act to forget, you dismiss and negate. That is the action to forget if you're trying to. Potentially, what Taylor is referring to here in a philosophical sense is a new way of forgetting. This way of forgetting involves creating a new picture. Instead of dismissing and negating, in an effort to forget, she could be struggling with her memory to tie a new identity to that memory of the person. This is also just super hard. And trying to know someone you've never met is also super hard. So this lyric may just be reducible to that. I'll concede that. But transformation of memory and the tying of certain memories to certain identities um, absolutely speaks to the efforts of healing and growing for an active critical thinker. Um, another red lyric is... Touching him was like realizing all you ever wanted was right there in front of you. This is my last lyric analysis. You know, I'm pushing 15. Gotta respect you Thursday. But Taylor, come on. We were doing so well. You're so philosophical after all, right? But it seems like in this lyric, she has fallen slave to her material and temporal desires. There's no way that a human love is everything you ever wanted, Taylor, right? What about self-fulfillment? What about knowledge? I, well, I mean, you know, asking for satisfaction with knowledge today is laughable, but come on, girl. 
we were when we were so attached to the material world that we reduce everything we want in life to the reaction of a temporal being then clearly we're detached from and just wrong about what life was truly about life is about capital t truth oh my goodness i don't know if you guys can hear that but i apologize for the noise going on my door but repeat life is about capital t truth i'm sorry to burst everyone's spirit here but life is not about the temporal satisfaction of one relationship with another temporal being perhaps that one relationship can lead you closer to capital t truth in a meaningful and true way but that's not everything you've ever wanted it could never be at least it shouldn't be maybe this is the reason why she's writing so many songs about heartbreak Maybe she's too concerned with the temporal reactions and sustaining broken relationships. We can't really blame her, though, because even the most renowned practicing philosophers struggle with their relationships to the temporal and dwell on unnecessary and natural desires. All right, I think I've said what needed to be said. (laughs) I loved listening to Taylor's version of Red, and I think it's just very empowering that she's regaining her agency in a philosophical sense and owning her labor. I love that for her. Um, I hope you all enjoyed this podcast, and we'll be back next time for a new episode of Emmaism. Until then, listen to Red Taylor's version and keep searching for the truth.